0: God's Word commands that we go and tell, and that we not limit that to just a small circle around our neighborhood, but that we impact the community in which we live, that we do what we can to impact the state, the nation, and the world. We're commanded to do that. Go into all the world, Jesus said. Not only are we commanded to do that, we have compassion that gives us a reason to do that. We're compassionate for people because we understand that people matter to God. God did not come to save trees, and He didn't come to save water, and He didn't come to save the ozone layer. God's going to make an all-new of that. But He came to save people. Jesus died on a tree for people. And His death gives us compassion because He loved us. So He gives us a love for other people. But another reason why we put our differences aside is not only because we've been commanded to do it, not only because we have compassion to do it, but because we know there are consequences if we don't. People will die and spend eternity without Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. That they will come to the end of their life having rejected Christ, that they will spend eternity separated from Him in a place called hell. Because we believe the Word of God to be true, we believe that every man, woman, boy, and girl has an eternal destiny. And that eternal destiny is either heaven or hell. There's no in-between, there's no limbo, there's no uh, floating. You're not going to be reincarnated. Shirley MacLaine may be, but nobody else is going to be. She's going to come back as a fruitcake at Christmas. <clears throat> There went my compassion. My <laughs> compassion just went out the door. <laughs> but we believe that people have an eternal destiny and that, that drives us to make a difference with their lives. If a church is going to be multi-generational, it has to think about the future and about people's future. What happens to them as they continue on the path of life number of years ago there was a hydraulic dam, hydroelectric dam, that was built in a valley in Maine. And to build that, they had to relocate a small town. Once they made that announcement, although it was years in the process of building it, the town gave up. People quit planting flowers, they quit planting trees. They quit building homes when somebody would move out, nobody would move in. When a business would go under or close its door, no business would come in and take the place of that business. Streets went unrepaired. The the, the climate was one of despair. And there's a reason for that. When there's no faith in the future, there will be no work in the present. If you don't have faith in the future, then you won't work in the present. If I did not believe that God had given us a future as a church, I would have no reason to work today. If I did not believe that God had called us to something beyond ourselves, beyond today, beyond our past, to something that stretches us and challenges us, there would be no motivation for us to do anything other than just come and sit and soak. But God has given us a future and a hope. And because He's given us a future and a hope, He has given us a purpose to live by. And He's given us something to do. And we cannot afford to be at odds with one another if we're going to accomplish what God has for us. Paul warned Titus in his reference to overseers in chapter 1, verse 9, to hold fast to the faithful word. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced, because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Paul was dealing with a culture that was having a war of words. And it was a culture filled with people who were divisive. There were Jews against Gentiles, slaves against masters. There were cultural differences between the different communities, some highly influenced by the Greek culture, others more influenced by the Roman culture. There were the Judaizers and the Gnostics and those of the circumcision and the legalists who were all coming inside the church and they were talking their party lines and playing politics. And trying to divide and conquer and trying to get their platform and their agenda up doesn't sound much different than what you've been reading this week, does it? And it's still true in the church today. Two thousand years later, we are still dealing with the fact that there will always be people who try to divide the body of Christ, who try to keep it from being what God called it to be, to try to disrupt the spread of the gospel. And most of that is not because of doctrinal differences. It is because of personal preferences. Most of the reasons why you see churches divided and people divided is not over doctrine. Most of the churches in this community would agree on most doctrine. We may have various interpretations of things, but it's not worth fighting and fussing about. But where churches get in trouble, and where God's people get in trouble is when they place personal preferences over the word of God. Now when you look at our community, if you were to go and do an age scan and a study of the median age of the average church in our community, it would be an older church. And yet a study by U.S. News and World Report a number of years, a few years ago said that Albany, Georgia is one of the youngest communities in America of a population our size. And so what you have is you have a diversity that shouldn't be there. Churches primarily filled with older generation people and a community flooded with younger generation people. And they just keep coming, and they just keep coming, and they keep coming. And God has called us to bridge those gaps and to lay aside our personal preferences to look to the future. Otherwise, we will become a generation of builders that say those boomers are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And boomers will say of Generation X, they're always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And we will dissect ourselves to death. Now I'll be the first to admit that there are things about other generations that I don't understand. I understand the generation I was raised in, but there are things about other other generations I don't understand. There are things about some music today that that I I I got it, but I don't get it. I mean I just don't understand it. You know I, I remember a number of years ago. Uh, uh, I met Dion Damucci, uh, who was Dion in the Belmonts, and and we were talking about music in the '50s and stuff. And he said, all you had to do to sing back up in the '50s was to know your alphabet. You had to go ba 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 or do 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 or d d d or da 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 You know, you just had to know your alphabet. That's all you had to. You know, it wasn't rocket science. You know, now it's just you know you feel like you're having a spasm when you're, you know, so and. And I got it. I mean, I understand and I understand that there are certain things that every generation has its music. And in fact, in America today, every generation is defined by its music. But my preference cannot overrule what God has called us to do. God has called us to come together and to work together. And nothing that I do can take precedent over looking in somebody's heart and saying, where can we find grounds to agree on And so let's look at some characteristics. They're there in your notes. I just thought I'd give these to you uh, so you could go back and agree or disagree or whatever. There are some excellent books out on the study of the various cultures. But let me just give you some highlights here of veterans. Veterans like to shake hands before and after church. You go to my parents' home church. You walk in the door. The usher says, Hi, how you doing? Shake your hands. You tell them, Hey, let's mix and mingle. Turn around and shake somebody's hand. They'll all sit there just like this. Just looking straight ahead I'm not supposed to do that now I'm supposed to do that at the first I'll do it at the end but I'm not going to do it now that's not when we're supposed to do it now uh, the hymns they like the hymns that are more meditative Uh, for builders largely all you need is one microphone attached to the pulpit just like this one minister of music stands behind the pulpit and waves his arms preferably both of them they want a bulletin with the order of service spelled out. I remember a number of years ago when we didn't print the bulletin one week. You would have thought we were going to have massive coronaries. Uh, somebody came up and said, You yeah. know, where's the offering? I looked at him and said, Well, you're probably not going to give anyway. I don't know why you're worried about it. Uh, there went my compassion again. <laughs> they still want an official prayer meeting in Sunday school literature. They want the pastor to be the primary visitor. I love John Bassanio's story when a lady came to him one day and said, Brother John, said, what happens if I get sick and go to the hospital? Will, will you come see me? How sick do I have to be before you come see me? He said, Lady, you don't want to be that sick. He said, when I walk in the room, they're performing last rites. <laughs> he said, you don't want to be that sick. That's a joke, by the way. For boomers... They prefer to shake hands during the service. They like worship to be fast-paced, no dead time. They want microphones, lots of microphones with a band. They like a praise team up front. Everything should be upbeat. Applause means amen. They want the preacher to be a communicator. The sermon should focus on application. For Generation X, by the way, there's a lot of Generation X. that's a great deal like builders. A lot of it. Uh, They are not interested in performances. They like to participate. They like the music to set the mood and it doesn't have to be upbeat all the time. This is a key one for Generation X. They view boomer worship to be just as predictable as grandma's worship. What baby boomers like is just as predictable as, as what grandma likes. Like the veterans, they want a slower pace, but with multiple experiences, that's their difference. They are highly interested in multimedia you see us using a lot of this. We have it set up in our new building. There'll be two screens larger than this one on each side of the platform where we will show uh, vignettes and little videos from time to time, video testimonies of people that'll be used. Why? Because this generation is very video and multimedia conscious. They hate anything that looks or sounds fake, including green plants. They're highly motivated by service and missions. If you want to get a Generation X to get on board, you give them a task to do. You give them a mission that they can get their hands on and they'll go to work for you. That's why our students have responded so well to the rack attacks and to going out and cutting grass for people and cleaning up people's houses and my daughter worked last year all summer long every Monday in a soup kitchen. You know, if you knew my daughter, a soup kitchen is not her idea of a thing to do. She doesn't know how to fix a peanut butter sandwich. But she worked in a soup kitchen because something about that generation wants a hands-on experience where they can say, I've touched somebody's life and I've made a difference. Now, if a church limits its programming to just one of these age groups, here's what's going to happen. In about 10 to 15 years, the church that only focuses on the veterans and the builders will be out of business. My home church has died a slow and painful death over the last 20 to 25 years. They now run about 125 in Sunday school. They keep trying to prop it up, but they don't want to spend money on fixing up a nursery. Here's their attitude. Well, when we get more kids, we'll fix it up. I said, listen, you're not going to get any more kids till you fix it up. You've got to do something about that. They don't want to do anything to reach young people. They don't want to spend the money on a salary. And so when my dad was alive, I said to dad, Dad, who do you think is going to live the longest in that church? He said, I don't know why. I said, give them a key because they're going to be able to lock it up and board it up when it's over because it's going to be over. And today you can walk into my home church which has an auditorium bigger than this one and find 120 people spread out just in various little areas dying a slow death because they decided they didn't want to pay the price anymore to reach out of their comfort zone and to go after new people. Boomers, if all you do is focus on boomers, which a lot of churches focus on boomers today, then in about 25 years, all boomer churches are going to be gray-haired nursing homes playing oldies music. It'd be all these gray-haired boomers gumming themselves to death, singing, all you need is love. wondering if paul is dead <laughs> if it's just geared toward generation x here's what will happen generation x doesn't like structure they don't like organization they like it to just kind of free flow if you all you do is gear a church and there are churches today being started to do nothing but minister to generation x what happens is you will have a church that has no organization no structure No direction and no money. And they won't be able to do ministry. And so why do these three need each other? (laughs) Because they need each other. Because they need to learn from one another. The Generation X needs to learn from the builders. The boomers need to learn from Generation X. In fact, the problem with boomers is they've been so catered to and pampered by their parents that they don't even care about the generation that's coming along behind them. They're going to spend all their inheritance that they get. They're going to squander their lives in pig pens. They're going to waste themselves big, building bigger and better barns all the while God's calling them to do something beyond themselves. I remember when I was in Kansas City, we had a very large national parachurch organization. And I would go and speak for them a lot. And They had their Bible studies and their group meetings in homes. And I would go on Thursday nights and speak in some of their group meetings, and I'd start to talk to their teenagers and say, Well, where do you go to church? They said, Well, we don't go to church anywhere. And then I'd say, Well, what about your relationship with Christ? Oh, I got a relationship with Christ. I'm saved. I just don't go to church. I'm not into church. Church is not my thing. I said, What are you going to do when you get too old for this youth organization? I don't know. You see, what happens is, is if an organization doesn't draw people into a church, with multiple generations, then we don't know how to relate to one another. I mean, just go to the mall and watch the different generations stare at one another and avoid each other. You ever watched it? Just go to the mall and watch teenagers looking at senior adults and senior adults looking at teenagers and standing away from each other or mocking each other or griping about one another. The church has to be the institution ordained by God where people come together and quit staring at one another and start learning how to relate to one another. Start learning how to get together and build bridges to one another so that we understand why somebody's the way they are, instead of just writing them off. And I'm afraid that sometimes it is too easy for us to write people off. And so I want to take you to Ephesians 4. Paul says we don't have a right to be one-generational, to be selective, to be exclusive. In Ephesians 4, he is giving the application of what he said in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. There's, There's a strong imperative to individual believers in this chapter. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now Paul is saying here, this is how I want you to live. This is your responsibility. And the first thing he says is that there are some characteristics and some character qualities of a multi-generational church. Number one, humility. The Greeks hated humility. I mean, for them, it was the worst thing in the world to tell a person to be humble. It was so counterculture to talk about humility. And by the way, it hasn't changed. We still are a society that despises humility. Now, Jesus exemplified humility. It says, For the joy set before him, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. How do I know that Jesus exemplified humility? Because He washed the feet of disciples that should have been washing His feet. Because He touched lepers. Because He crossed lines. Because He went through Samaria instead of going around it. He risked ridicule. He risked scorn because He humbled Himself. When He could have exalted Himself, when He could have called down angels, He died a humble death. Why? To set an example for us. To not walk around and strut when we walk. The Greek means to think humbly. It means to be other centered. It is a willingness to give up my rights for someone else. We got a lot of questions in our culture and in our society and country today. Is anybody going to lay down their rights for the good of this country? Or are we just going to fight one another until we're in each other's face? You see, that if you listen carefully, you will discover that at some point, somebody's going to have to be a statesman and say, this country is bigger than me. And I don't really care which one it is. I just want somebody to be an honorable man and say that the country and the good of this country is more important than my personal position. And that's where it ought to be in the church. The good of the church is more important than me or than you. Humility. Secondly, gentleness. Sometimes this is translated meekness. It means strength under control. The word means that rather than overreacting to something or someone, I temper my reactions. I, I temper my reactions and keep myself in check. I love this quote by Finley. It is the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless master of himself and the servant of others. It is the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights either in the presence of God or of men. Meekness. Patience. means to have a long fuse when it comes to others. Patience. To have a long fuse. I got to admit, that's not always me. Let me tell you another thing. This word means, it means to be long-suffering surf- with people who are aggravating. Is that hard for anybody in here besides me? I mean, is there anybody in your life it's just like fingernails on a chalkboard? You know, it, it, you just see them I and it, it just and you just. I mean, the hair on the back of your neck just goes nuts. And Paul says, "Listen." You need to be long-suffering with people like that. The people who aggravate you. Number four, tolerance for one another. Now, I even hate to tell you what this means. Tolerance for one another means I'm willing to put up with somebody until God changes them. (laughs) Ah, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's why I've been able to pastor this church for 11 years. Because some of you have been willing to put up with me until God changes me. You see, I didn't arrive in a perfect package. And I won't leave in a perfect package. But that's why I can put up with some of you, because God's not through with you yet. And to be tolerant of one another means that sometimes you just got to let it go and say, God's working, and I'll be patient with His timetable. I won't make everybody get on my timetable and on my growth chart. I'll let God put them on His growth chart. Now, when we can think that way, that's liberating because then we don't have to feel like we've got to play Holy Spirit with everybody. And we don't feel like we're responsible for everybody and what they do and what they don't do when we can tolerate. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, love bears all things. It means it covers all things. And when I have tolerance, patience and tolerance are tied together here. When I have tolerance, it means my decision is to no longer concentrate on the negative that I see, but to concentrate on the positive that I see. When I make that choice, then if it is about somebody in another generation or somebody in my own generation, when I see something that I don't like, I have to make a choice under the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to concentrate on what bugs me. I'm going to concentrate on what blesses me. And life is so much about our viewpoint and how we look at people and how we look at things. And I want to tell you something. This society and this culture is leading us to not tolerate anybody that disagrees with us. I mean, what you're hearing on the news today is just get everybody out of the way that doesn't agree with me. And that is not the attitude that the church can have. The church has got to allow for some diversity. And patience and tolerance means I I, I don't point fingers and I quit saying so much, how can they do that? And I don't always say, how do they call that worship? I I still have not figured out where God gets glory out of a mosh pit in the front in a Christian concert. I, I have not figured that one out yet. But that's not my generation. You say, well, that's just, it that looks like flesh to me. Well, it looks like flesh to me, too. But I'm going to choose to take those kids where they are, and not where I want them to be. Because one day they'll outgrow that. Just like you outgrew some things that your parents thought you'd never outgrow, and you said you'd never change. And just like I outgrew some things that I thought I had to have my way about those things. You know, as you get older and as you mature, You outgrow those things. But I want to tell you, if you throw water on the fire, you may not have any fire one day. And so sometimes you just got to give and take a little bit. And I want to tell you, it's not in our nature to give and take. It's just not. It's in our nature to dig our heels in and to want our way. But Paul says we're to tolerate, we're to have patience, we're to have gentleness, we're to have humility. say, well, how do I do that? He says, in love. Agape. Love ties it all together. Let me just get you to write down Colossians 3.14. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. How does a church have unity? How does a church move forward? How does a church lay aside its differences? Colossians 3.14. God's love binds everything together in perfect harmony. That means if you're 80, you can relate to somebody who's 8 or 18. Because God's love does that. God loves, bills and you can't legislate that. You can't make that happen. We've sat around and had staff meetings and discussions about how we can get people to get to know each other that are in their 60s and get to know people in their 20s. And we've tried to think of programs to make people do that. You can't legislate that. You can't program that. The Holy Spirit of God's got to do that. We've got to stop talking long enough to the people that we want to talk to and talk to some people that we need to talk to. Spend some time with them. If we don't, then the greatest threat to the future of Sherwood Baptist Church is not Satan and it's not demonic. It's us. Because we will sign our death certificate if we choose not to learn how to get along with other generations. Secondly, the scriptural reasons behind... Such a change in thinking. Seven times in verses 4 through 6 he talks about one. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. What he's saying there is, is if you try to divide, remember he's, Paul's always dealing with Judaizers and with the circumcision crowd and with the, the, the Gnostics. If, if you try to divide the church up, then you've not done what these verses have said. That we are of one. And so there's four things that he mentions. Number one, the unifying work of the Spirit. God's Spirit puts us in one body with one hope. And I know there are churches on every corner, and I know there are different denominations. But I choose to believe that if God's Spirit is in control, we can cooperate with churches that are of like mind, even if specific points of doctrine we may disagree with. See, I can fellowship with somebody that sprinkles instead of immerses. I'm not going to fight a war over that. I mean, Joe and I served a church where if you came from a church and you'd been immersed, they made you be immersed again because you weren't immersed in a Southern Baptist church. It, it, the label of the church doesn't have anything to do with it. Is was were you saved? before you were baptized, and do you believe that baptism is an act of obedience and not an act of salvation? If you believe that, then we're fine. There's nothing you add to baptism, to to Jesus Christ. You don't add baptism or the Lord's Supper or anything else to be saved. And God's Spirit brings us together, not in an organizational structure, but as a body, as a living organism. So there's a unifying work of the Spirit, and only the Spirit can do that. Secondly, the unifying work of the Son. One faith, one baptism. I got ahead of myself a little bit. Verse 5, the the confession of the early church was Jesus is Lord, and we lay aside our preferences under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now I've got things I like and I've got things I don't like. I've got preferences. I've got opinions. But I have to go under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, under His authority, and lay my preferences at His feet as the authority and the head of the church. Michael Cad is not the head of the church. Anytime I try to be, I get in trouble. Jesus Christ is the head of His church and He shares His throne and His glory with no man. And so I come under the unifying work of the Son and the Lordship of Christ keeps me from exalting what I want over what He says in His Word. And We've got people even within our own convention right now that are trying to be politically correct. You put it under the Lordship of Christ. You may have an opinion about it, you may have a thought about it, but it all comes down to the Lordship of Christ. And I want to tell you something, the Lordship of Christ would settle a lot of problems in people's lives about getting along with others. Number three, the unifying work of the Father. The unifying work of the Father. A couple of years ago, we were on vacation, and we had all of Terry's family in a cabin in Gatlinburg. First time I'd thought about doing drugs in a long, long time. (laughs) And I've got two nephews that the only thing they know is full bore, pedal to the metal, no brakes. I mean, they run and they holler and they scream and, you know, it's it's enough to make a man cry. I mean, it just... And so, I, you know, their dad wasn't doing anything about it, so I decided that I would appoint myself to do something about it. So Thomas came running through the bar. Boom, he came by, and I just grabbed that little old skinny arm about that big around. I just grabbed it up. I probably almost jerked his arm out of the socket. I said, Thomas, stop it. He never even blinked. He looked up at me and said, You're not my daddy. He was right. I wasn't his daddy. But we have a common father. In the church. We come from different families, we come from different backgrounds, but we have the unifying work of the Father. There is one Father in God's family. Not many, there's one. And He unifies us as a family. And if you've ever been in a family where the Father was like a patriarch, and when He spoke it was a done deal, then you understand this principle. I know Father's gotten a bad rap in this culture. But everything that is good and right about a Father, that is the image of Father that God has of Himself. And the picture that He paints of Himself in the Word. The one that overrules, the one that oversees, the one that protects, the one that nurtures, the one that guides, the one that directs. And His unifying work. The Father will give us our individual assignments, but all under His authority. Then there's the unifying work of the Word. Go back to verse 3. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now that is a command. That's in the imperative mood. And it says that we are to strongly be diligent. It it means to be quick to do this, to put your heart into it, to be passionate about it. Don't have a wait-and-see attitude about the bond of the Spirit and about peace. Get after it. Do it with a sense of urgency. Be diligent about this. It does not allow us to be passive. It does not allow us to be apathetic about building this unity and this peace in the body. It means we have to work for it. We have to even fight for it if we have to. But we cannot let anything divide the unity of the body of Christ. Now why is that so important? Paul was dealing with the situation that we've talked about in the last few weeks. He would go into a city and he would preach in a Jewish synagogue. He'd get thrown out because he'd talk about Jesus as the Messiah. And so he would start preaching and he would start a church in a home. And over the course of time, some Jews would be saved, some Gentiles would be saved, some slaves would be saved, masters would be saved. Paul did not go to Ephesus. Ephesus was a large city. There was one church. Paul did not go to Ephesus and say, okay, now over here on the corner of this street, we're going to start a church for slaves. And if you're a slave, you go to that church. That's where you belong. And over here on this side of town, on this corner, we're going to start a church for masters. And if you're a master, an owner of a slave, you go to this church and that's where you belong. You see, they were having some problems because the slaves were open to the gospel and they were being saved and li- their lives were being changed and then some of their masters were coming in and being slave being saved and all of a sudden the masters are finding that their slaves are the deacons and elders and pastors of the church and they're having to put themselves under the authority of somebody that they owned and they were freaking out he did not say then over here we're going to start a church for converted Jews and y'all just teach your doctrine like you want to teach it. Then he said, over here we're going to start a church for Gentiles, and you do what you want to do. That's not what he did. Paul said, everybody get in one room. Get under the Lordship of Christ. Get filled with the Holy Spirit. Figure out how to get along. And that's the way the church is supposed to work. It's not supposed to be about white-collar versus black. Blue collar, blacks versus white or or Hispanic. It's not supposed to be about rich versus poor. The church is the only place in the world that exhibits such a love and such a grace and such a unity that people can come from all segments of society under one roof to worship one God in one spirit through one son teaching one word for the glory of God. That's the difference the church makes. And when we live that way, we work in a field of various different people. But we work together for the glory of God.